Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. So we're talking about the thing, not the thing from another world or the thing, but the thing. Because they called the prequel to the thing, the thing. So when you say you're watching the thing, people are like, what are you watching? Is it the thing or the thing? Whoever made the decision to call the prequel to the thing, the thing, really didn't understand the thing or the thing that makes the thing so unique. The thing is... There's only really one The Thing. It's the thing you should be watching, not The Thing. Don't watch The Thing. Watch The Thing. Got it? Who goes there? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 48, The Thing, brackets, 1982. Just to be perfectly clear what we're covering today, in hindsight, uh, it's probably a good choice actually for a time when an invisible virus is spreading through the population and paranoia is high. Um, Nevertheless, (laughs) with regards to coronavirus, I hope that you are all remaining safe and well and healthy, um, continuing to social distance, wear masks, etc. And avoid COVID-19 spreading like the thing spreads. If you are new to this podcast, hi, hello, uh, welcome to my podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, It is a joy to have you here with us to talk about the thing. Um, And also thank you for the incredibly positive response to the previous episode on Princess Mononoke. Um, Princess Mononoke was an episode that I'd been thinking of doing for a long time. I'd kind of said back in February, yes, I'll definitely do Princess Mononoke. And, um, And yeah, the it really did surpass my expectations in in many ways. Um, it was a genuine joy to revisit the movie again. Um, it's a movie that always feels fresh each time I watch it. Um, and the reaction to the episode was just really positive and lovely. I got some really lovely DMs. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to let me know that you really enjoyed Princess One and OK because I really enjoyed making an episode on it. So, and again, uh, with this episode, with The Thing... Um, again, it, it's like a, it is a completely different uh, thing, uh, I guess. It's kind of the only way I can describe it. Um, I 
have always wanted to cover more horror just purely from the fact that when I asked people what they want they said that they love horror um horror is not my favorite genre I've always been completely honest about that and so the thing is a movie that I think might surprise quite a few people that I actually enjoy it um I remember watching it for the first time and and being quite surprised how much I enjoyed it um but it's also a movie that still constantly terrifies me and grosses me out quite a lot um I think it's such an interesting thing oh there's that word again (laughs) uh to talk about so bearing this in mind let's travel back to 1982 it's winter uh it's a US outpost in Antarctica uh where our story begins um ignoring the 2011 prequel We'll, we'll get to that a bit later. discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! research station in Antarctica in the early winter of 1982, they are surprised by a helicopter from a nearby Norwegian research station who are trying to kill a dog that has escaped from their base. After the destruction of the Norwegian chopper, the members of the US team fly to the Norwegian base, only to discover all of them dead or missing. They do, however, find the remains of a strange creature the Norwegians burned. The Americans take it to their base and deduce that it is an alien life form. After a while, it is apparent that the alien can take over and assimilate into other life forms, including humans, and can spread like a virus. Overcome by paranoia, the team learn they cannot trust each other and that any one of them could be the thing. Dun dun dun. <laughs> uh, right, so let's quickly go through the cast. Um, obviously, we have the one, the only Kurt Russell as RJ McCready. Wilford Brimley as Dr. Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper, Charles Hallahan as Vance Norris, Peter Maloney as George Bennings, Richard Mazur as Clark, Donald Moffat as Gary, and Joel Polis as Fuchs. 
the screenplay was written by Bill Lancaster. It was obviously directed by John Carpenter. It's often referred to as John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, and it was based on Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., uh, which was originally written under his pen name Don A. Stewart. The Thing... Uh, and for the purposes of this podcast, when I say the thing, unless I'm specifically talking about the prequel, which I will talk about a little bit later, I am referring to the 1982 version. So just to make that completely clear, because I think it is very, very confusing with the 1982 movie and the 2011 movie. But every time I say the thing, I'm talking about 1982, just to be completely clear. Um, so the thing is a reinterpretation rather than a remake um, of the 1951 film directed by Christian Nyby and produced by Howard Hawks, which is The Thing from Another World, which was in turn a loose adaptation of John W. Campbell's 1938 novella Who Goes There? Uh, the Thing from Another World um, is a bit of a different movie. Uh, it has no shape-shifting or cell absorption. Uh, the Thing from Another World, 1951, is probably more akin to Audrey 2, actually, from Little Shop of Horrors, which is episode 45 of the podcast, by the way, um, because that creature turns out to be a plant-based life form, which feeds on blood. The creature himself is also played by a man in a suit. Um, both films are obviously based on the same source novella, but... Uh, Carpenter actually insisted that he did not want to emulate or compete with the 1951 movie. He did, however, pay homage to it by showing the alien excavated from the ice. Interestingly as well, John Carpenter actually showed a clip from The Thing from Another World in his movie Halloween. It's the movie being watched by the kids and babysitters. And thank you to at Pulp Serial on Twitter for that interesting factoid. Um, so fast forward 20 plus years to the mid 70s. Um, where producers David Foster and Lawrence Terman are pitching an adaptation of Campbell's novella that's truer to the source material than the 1951 film version to Universal. In 1976, the rights to 23 of Howard Hawke's RKO Pictures films, including The Thing from Another World, were purchased by Wilbur Stark, but he agreed to Universal purchasing the rights from him in return for an executive producer credit. We will come back to Wilbur Stark a little bit later. Once Universal had the rights to remake The Thing from Another World, the hunt for a director started. John Carpenter, then an independent filmmaker in 1976, was approached by co-producer and friend Stuart Cohen, but Universal were interested in and had a contract already with Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. A movie I have not seen. I have no intention of seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. FYI. Toby Hooper and his writing partner Kim Henkel pitched their concept idea for this remake, but Universal didn't like it. They tried to bring John Landis aboard to no avail. Other failed pitches came and went and the project ended up being put on hold. Fast forward again a few years, John Carpenter had had commercial success with aforementioned Halloween in 1978, where he also worked with cinematographer Dean Cundy. And in 1979, Ridley Scott's Alien was released, a landmark in science fiction horror. It was the success of Alien that reinvigorated Universal's idea to remake The Thing, or make The Thing, so to speak. And John Carpenter was approached again by Stuart Cohen to tempt him to join the project. He was reluctant because he felt that the 1951 version would be difficult to better. Uh, Cohen suggested rather than think about that 1951 film to instead read the original novella, uh, which Carpenter was impressed by. Uh, he found the concept creepy and interesting um, and he decided that he would be on board. Uh, in the meantime, Carpenter had made The Fog 
1980 and Escape from New York in 1981 with Kurt Russell. Carpenter and Russell had worked together twice before, obviously Escape from New York and also a TV movie biography on Elvis Presley. But despite this, Kurt Russell was not a shoo-in for the role of McCready. Uh, Although Kurt Russell was involved with the production, he was actually the last to be cast. Uh, The likes of Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, Nick Nolte, Tom Atkins, Jack Thompson and Sam Shepard were all considered for McCready before Kurt Russell was offered the part. And that was for practical reasons more than anything, um, because John Carpenter knew he could trust Kurt Russell. Um, He knew he could deal with harsh filming conditions and they already had this really great friendship. Um, It actually took Kurt Russell a year to fashion that gorgeous, lush, glossy hair and beard combo, which is just the most impressive hair and beard probably ever put to screen. So filming started in the summer of 1981 with a two week rehearsal period beforehand and was set to complete in 98 days. It was a mixture of on location shoots in Juneau, Alaska and in Stewart on the Canadian coast and also filming at Universal's lot where the set was climate controlled to minus two degrees Celsius, which is 28 degrees Fahrenheit by portable air conditioners. They also used humidifiers to add moisture to the air so that you could see people's breath, etc., Um, No existing locations were used for the filming of the movie and all exterior shots were built specifically for it. Um, Interestingly, the Norwegian camp was actually the same set as the American camp. Uh, It was shot at the end of production, so the camp was just completely destroyed um, and it meant that they didn't have to create two exterior sets. They just ended up using the same one twice, which is actually quite good financial sense, really. (laughs) The reason why I really, really wanted to talk about the thing, though, uh, are the outstanding practical effects um, and mainly the work of uh, Rob Bottin. Um, Anyone who listens to this podcast will know I am a massive fan of practical effects. Um, I think practical effects, when done well, as a lot of the times they are, because I think they really were quite heavily invested in um, back in sort of the 80s and 90s um, and before, obviously. Um, I haven't actually covered any movies from before the 80s on this podcast. They, they will come. I obviously grew up watching the movies of the 80s and 90s, so that's kind of the era that I'm more familiar with. Um, but practical effects because they're tangible and because they're real and because people are really touching and feeling and and interacting with these things. So just keep saying the word thing. I don't mean to. Um, It it always feels a lot more real um, than CGI ever will. And that's one of the reasons why I really, really wanted to talk about the thing. And as I mentioned, Rob Bottin. Um, So while he didn't do all the practical effects on the thing, uh, the then 21-year-old Rob Bottin started out when he was 14 years old. He sent illustrations to Oscar-winning special effects creator and designer Rick Baker. Uh, Rick Baker is probably most well-known for his incredible creature effects in An American Werewolf in London. Rob Bottin ended up being hired by Rick Baker to work on 1976's King Kong. Uh, At that time, he was just 17 years old. Uh, When George Lucas asked Rick Baker to create additional creatures for the famous Star Wars cantina scene, Rob Bottin was one of the assistants on that movie, uh, along with Phil Tippett, legendary Jurassic Park dinosaur supervisor. The tall creature in the cantina scene is actually Rob Bottin in a costume. 
Bottine was introduced to John Carpenter via Dean Cundy uh, and was hired by Carpenter to create special makeup effects for his 1980 movie, The Fog. Um, So having previously worked together, Carpenter asked Bottine to join The Thing Project in mid-1981, just as pre-production was in progress. At that point, they hadn't settled on a design for the alien creature. Uh, Carpenter had originally envisaged The Thing to be one specific creature with one design, uh, but when Bottine came on board... It was his suggestion to make it a life form that could imitate others, but would need a transition period to assimilate into those other life forms. This was when it was decided that anyone assimilated would be a perfect copy and would also not know that they were the thing, which would add to the paranoia of everyone, because to each individual, they genuinely thought they were who they said they were. Uh, (laughs) Rob Bottin hired Eric Jensen, who was a special effects line producer who he'd worked with on The Howling, to be in charge of a 35-person crew of artists and technicians in the special effects department, uh, who obviously worked with prosthetics, animatronics, um, as well as a variety of different... I keep wanting to say things. This is really bad. Like, my vocabulary is better than this, I swear. Um, But different textures and different different ways of bringing the the gore to life so things like mayonnaise creamed corn bubble gum ky jelly uh all to create like assorted blurred guts internal bits and pieces that sort of thing they wanted to make it look as gory and realistic as possible um probably most famously uh, in the norris thing scene where the character of norris appears to have a cardiac arrest And they attempt to resuscitate him with a defibrillator. Um, It's at that point that it becomes apparent that the thing can do whatever it needs to to survive. Uh, The chest of Norris uh, turns into a large mouth and eats Copper's arms. It's one of the defining moments of the film. It's the one that everyone's seen. Um, And that was accomplished by hiring a double amputee and having the amputee wear prosthetic arms, which contained wax bones and jelly. Uh, that is jello, by the way, to people in the US, uh, not jam, because we call jello jelly and you call jam jelly, I think. Um, so to me, it's jelly, but it's actually jello. Uh, but it's actually jelly. Uh, the arms were genuinely ripped off by the mechanics in the chest mouth thing. So that was real, uh, which. I still think is quite awesome. Um, The Norris thing's head then severs itself, which is such a wonderful effect of it peeling, you know, just like extending the head until the neck kind of peels itself away. That was done by bubblegum, which had been heated. um, And then it just kind of stretched away. Uh, It falls to the ground and becomes essentially a little spider Norris thing until it's torched by MacReady. The spider Norris thing... Uh, was made out of incredibly flammable material um, and with so much fire on the set the Norris thing's head actually did burst into flames for real Uh, luckily it could be salvaged and they basically shot everything that they needed to with it anyway but the actual mechanical puppet I think is one of the most interesting and, and kind of visceral images from the movie to have it the head kind of sprout legs I think it's just it's just so wonderful how they do that and I know, I feel like it's a bit weird because I'm talking on a podcast about how they did it, but it still wows me to this day, like how they did everything they did on this movie. Um, it's interesting as well because essentially what they're saying with this movie is that 
each cell of the thing is essentially a sentient being uh, and all it's doing is trying to survive. Every drop of blood, as we see in the blood test scene, has that same instinct. It adds to the fear as well, because is it really possible to destroy every drop of blood from everything that ever assimilated in Outpost 31? And it's worth adding too that the ability of only a blood test to confirm infection wasn't lost on John Carpenter. Um, AIDS was considered an epidemic at the time, which was also something that you couldn't tell who was infected by looking at them. You could only tell by a blood test. Um, There was a real fear, uh, just a general public, of being infected by AIDS in the 80s. Um, People thought it could even be transmitted through touch or by shaking someone's hand. Obviously, now we not only understand the infection, but also drugs have come a long way in controlling the symptoms and obviously the contraction as well of of HIV or AIDS. At this point, Rob Bottin was only just of legal age to drink in the US because obviously the legal age to drink in the US is 21. um, And he had this massive production weighing on his young shoulders. He actually ended up being hospitalised for exhaustion, double pneumonia and an ulcer. Uh, He worked on The Thing for a year. He slept on the set almost continually. His dedication to the project was unrivaled. Imagine what you were doing at age 21 or 22. I know I wasn't as dedicated and hardworking as Rob Bottin. Legendary special effects creator Stan Winston became involved in the creation of The Dog Thing to take pressure off Bottin's crew who were becoming overwhelmed with the sheer scale of work required for The Thing. And Dog Thing was a hand puppet. It was sculpted in oil-based clay and moulded into a foam latex puppet, which was worn by makeup artist Lance Anderson. It had radio-controlled eyes and cable-controlled legs. And reverse motion was used for the tentacles. Um, It's obviously worth noting as well that Stan Winston refused a credit for his work on the movie and insisted that Rob Bottin take a sole credit and deserved a sole credit. Um, So in the credits, Stan Winston has a thank you instead. Randall William Cook, an expert in stop motion, developed a sequence for the Blair thing at the end of the movie. Originally envisaged as a full stop motion sequence, John Carpenter actually only ended up using a few seconds of Cook's footage because he was disappointed with the sequence. The scene involving the stop motion Blair thing is available online. I will pop it in the show notes, a link to that on YouTube. Uh, The actual puppet that they used, the Blair Thing puppet, in the movie was operated by 50 people in the end. And it is obviously a huge puppet. Um, But it's actually, I've watched the stop motion work and I actually think it looks okay. It's a bit dark. It's very hard to see. um, But it actually looks quite good. Even the titles of the thing are a work of art. So that was created using a fish tank, a plastic bin bag stretched over a frame and the title on an animation cell um, and light pointing through the letters. Uh, That was created by special optical effects supervisor Peter Curran. And what he did was he lit a match to the plastic bag. As he was filming it, the plastic would open up to show the letters illuminated behind. It sounds really simple. Um, It took a lot of takes to get it right, but the end result is superbly effective. Um, If you watch that title scene again, you can even see the flames in the background. It's very, very clever and very, very simple, but not simple to execute, just sounds simple. The poster for the movie was created by Drew Struzan, who has created over 150 movie posters for the likes of Star Wars, 
Indiana Jones and Back to the Future, among many, many others. Uh, he was given just 24 hours to create the iconic image uh, that you see on the poster of the human looking figure with light emitting from the face. Uh, he actually wasn't given any opportunity to see the movie or know the plot uh, before he created it, uh, which is supposed to be MacReady. And all the studio told him uh, was to recall the 1951 film, which is obviously a man in a suit. And that's where that iconic image comes from. The ending of The Thing is one of the great fan conspiracies. It's still a goldmine of theories and discussion. Who is The Thing? Is it Childs? Is it MacReady? Is MacReady's bottle actually a Molotov cocktail? Why doesn't Childs have breath? Um, Carpenter himself admitted in the DVD commentary that he doesn't, even he doesn't know who, which of them is The Thing. He's since kind of gone back on that um, because there are occasions where he said that he does know um but in the dvd commentary he specifies that he doesn't so or if if neither of them are but that's the thing is i think that's kind of the point that no one really knows um because carpenter himself says the paranoia is the glue that holds the movie together and once you take away the glue then the movie doesn't start to unravel but it starts to answer a lot of its own questions. And sometimes you don't need to know the answer to the questions. Sometimes when a movie ends ambiguously, that's okay. It's fine. You don't need to know. Cinematographer Dean Cundy, uh, he has since revealed a subtle way to tell who in the movie is infected and who is not. He said that there is always a light in the eye of the uninfected because that means it shows life. Um, you can see in the blood test scene with Palmer, everyone but him has a little glint or a gleam in their eye and he does not and he turns out to be infected. The bleak ending of the movie though wasn't the original ending filmed. Because of its depressing nature, editor Todd Ramsey convinced Carter to film a happy ending um, because they thought that test audiences wouldn't like it. We've heard about test audiences on this podcast before. I'll go back to Little Shop of Horrors where there was a very depressing ending. They didn't like it. So they ended up having to reshoot a happy ending. Um, and Todd Ramsey thought maybe we should shoot a happy ending. Uh, their ending that they shot was where MacReady is rescued. He's tested and he passes the test to not be the thing. And they get the end credits. Uh, John Carpenter always preferred his original ending and the ambiguity within. Uh, there is another ending as well, uh, where the alien transforms back into a dog and escapes the camp, um, presumably to set up some sort of sequel. And obviously that sequel never materialised. Um, and, and really, nor did that ending. Um, I've never seen that ending, I'll be honest. Uh, apparently it does exist somewhere. There have been sequels on other formats. There was a card game in 2010. There was a 2017 board game called The Thing Infection at Outpost 31. There's also a forthcoming 2020 board game developed with help from Kickstarter called The Thing The Board Game. And there was also a well-received video game sequel that came out in 2002 for Xbox, PlayStation 2 and PC. Uh, John Carpenter himself actually endorsed that video game and cameos as an uncredited character. Fangoria actually ran a competition in 1981 for entries from people who drew what they thought the thing might actually look like. Um, those entries are still available online and I found them. Um, they are quite interesting. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to them in the show notes too, because some of them are very, very good. Uh, I mean, 
when you think what the thing might look like, really, I kind of feel like I I wouldn't know where to start because the thing looks like how it needs to look to survive. But these people, they decided that the thing would look specific ways and that they're very, very inventive. So check out the show notes for a link to that Fangoria competition. I feel like I have to talk a little bit about the prequel. Uh, so this is The Thing 2011. Uh, it was a movie that was sold as a prequel, developed as a remake, um, and which I watched actually as intended. So I watched this, this as a prequel. Uh, I watched the 2011 movie on Tuesday evening of last week. And then I rewatched the 1982 movie the following evening. Um, I didn't have time to watch them back to back. Um, I feel very much like it's an unnecessary story in many respects because it doesn't tell anything different to the 1982 movie. It follows very similar beats. As you'd expect, um, it contains several Easter eggs for the 1982 movie, such as, you know, an axe in the wall. But the problem with it, it really struggles to actually differentiate itself from the 1982 version, which, thinking about it, is maybe the point it doesn't want to be different. It wants to be the same. Um, and in that regard, it is it is kind of a true imitation. It's just an inferior one. Uh, the effects, which were originally created by Amalgamated Dynamics, um, you remember those guys if you listen to my episode on Tremors, because they created the amazing practical graboids, um, which still look fantastic to this day. There's plenty of videos on YouTube showing their animatronics uh, during the filming process for The Thing 2011. But for some unknown reason, uh, the director decided to replace all of those wonderful practical effects and overlay them with CGI, which looks okay at some points, but just ridiculous at others. Um, I feel like the practical effects, if they'd used them in The Thing 2011, wouldn't have ingratiated the movie anymore. It might have helped pay homage to the original a bit more. But then calling your prequel slash remake the same name as the 1982 movie was, in my opinion, a big mistake. Uh, if it's a true prequel, call it something else. Before The Thing. Uh, the Other Thing. Uh, previously on The Thing. I don't know, whatever you want. I feel like it was done to dupe the audience to get those bums on seats expecting a remake of The Thing, um, which it sort of is, in all honesty. But it is mainly a prequel. Um, and I ended up paying £2.49 to watch it, uh, just for the purposes of this podcast. And, you know, the things that I do... Um, I said things again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I put myself through it for this podcast. Look, it's not a terrible movie. It's just pointless. Um, if you were going to watch The Thing and you had a choice between 1982 and 2011, you've got to choose 1982. It's just, it's a no-brainer. The music for The Thing, 1982, obviously, uh, was composed by Ennio Morricone. It's a very electronic kind of synthesizer music, I guess. Uh, it's more tones than actual music. Um, a lot of it is just beats. Um, and it's very minimalist. Uh, a lot of scenes have no music at all, uh, and that ad just adds to the tension and isolation of the characters. Um, the music actually was nominated for a Razzie, uh, which I kind of can't believe, really, because it's very atmospheric music, but clearly... Uh, I mean, we'll talk about the, the critical reception to the thing in 1982 in a bit, um, 
But yeah, people did not like this movie uh, in the early 80s. So that was why it got a Razzie nomination. Right, over to uh, a little section I like to call the obligatory Keanu reference. And believe me when I say that I genuinely thought this was going to be the hardest one ever. Because how am I going to link the thing to Keanu Reeves? It's practically impossible unless I take it down a dirty route, which I'm not going to do because this is an all-ages podcast. So what I am going to say is Keanu Reeves... Uh, himself also starred in a remake of a 1951 alien movie. Uh, It was a movie that came out in 2008. It's called The Day the Earth Stood Still. It was a bit of a critical disaster. Uh, He played an alien called Klaatu. I'll admit I've not seen all of it. I've seen a little bit of it. Uh, I think I might have found it a bit boring. Sorry Keanu and turned it off. Um, But It just so happens that he was in a remake of a 1951 movie about an alien. So that was the best obligatory Keanu reference that I could get. But I'm quite happy with that, actually. Um, There was no other way I was going to be able to link the thing to Keanu. So, um, so yeah, I may watch The Day the Earth is Still. I am trying to get through all of Keanu's back catalogue because I feel like I should. If we are going to get married someday, I feel like I should at least know that I've seen all of his movies. But... I'm still not sure about the day the earth stood still. Um, If it's on streaming, I might watch it. But um, otherwise, I think I prefer to watch The Thing, to be honest. The Thing was released in the United States on the 25th of June, 1982. It ended up debuting in the charts at number eight, which is not brilliant for your brand new movie. But there was a reason for that. So E.T. had been released three weeks prior and was still number one at the US box office. And the same week as The Thing was released, Blade Runner was also released. Uh, Blade Runner shot to number two in the US box office charts, and the rest of the top eight consisted of Rocky Three, Annie, Firefox, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Poltergeist. It's interesting to note that Poltergeist is also another horror movie, Um, It's quite scary, but the difference between Poltergeist and The Thing is that Poltergeist was rated PG, which is miraculous, by the way. The rating system is crazy. How on earth is Poltergeist a PG and The Thing is an 18? Well, in the UK, it's an 18. I think it was probably R-rated over in America. But how? How is that possible? Poltergeist is really scary. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so the thing grossed $5.3 million in the first week. That was almost five times less than E.T. Uh, John Carpenter actually ended up blaming E.T. Um, for affecting the release of the thing uh, because obviously E.T. had a very friendly alien and a very happy ending, whereas the thing had a not so friendly alien and a not so happy ending. Um, and obviously the public was just eating up E.T. E.T. was everywhere in 1982 and it was one of the biggest movies of the year. So uh, if not the biggest movie of the year, thinking of it. When the thing was released, it received scathing critical reviews Cinefantastique magazine placed it on its cover with the question, is this the most hated movie of all time? 
uh, just a, a summary of what critics said about the thing. They called it junk. They called it wretched excess, cold and sterile, boring, bereft, despairing and nihilistic. Uh, the effects were more warmly received but seen as visually repulsive and madly macabre and too phony to be disgusting. Overall, critics thought the thing was lacking drama, featured sloppy continuity and was devoid of warmth. Well, you know, it's set in winter in Antarctica, but anyway, even the thing from another world director, Christian Neuby, criticised the movie, which greatly upset John Carpenter. The aftermath of the critical hammering and the average box office return cost John Carpenter the job of directing 1984's Firestarter. It also resulted in a $43 million lawsuit by Wilbur Stark. You'll remember I mentioned him at the top of the episode. So he filed for slander, for breach of contract, fraud and deceit, for failing to properly credit him in marketing and for his credit in the movie not being prominent enough. Of course, The Thing in recent years has been re-evaluated and is now seen as not only a cult classic, but also a horror classic. Um, Previously, it was lauded as Carpenter's worst movie. Now it's seen as one of his best. It's been named as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time by Empire magazine. It's often called one of the best movies of 1982 and the best science fiction horror movie of 1982. It's interesting how public and critical opinion can change. And movies of today, which are seen as failures, might actually be regarded differently in 10 or 20 or 30 years time. In my mind, there's hope for Greece too, <laughs> because generally I feel like with Greece too, the tide is starting to turn a little bit on that movie now. Uh, so maybe in a couple more years, Greece too will actually be seen as the genius that it is. Here's hoping. So the budget of the thing was initially set at $10 million, with the effects set to cost $200,000. Um, it was then re-estimated to $17 million before marketing and at least $750,000 for creature effects. It ended up costing $15 million, uh, $1.5 million of which was effects work, and it made $19.6 million in the US. The overrunning of the special effects budget caused the cutting of Noel's eventual death and the introduction of a new thing in his place. Obviously, in the final movie, Noel's just disappears um, and it's not explained as to what's happened to him. But that was all unfortunately cut. So one thing I always like to do is I always like to go over to social media and I always like to ask people, what do they think of the movie that I'm going to be featuring? And I expected a good response for the thing. Genuinely, it's the biggest response I think I've ever had since I've done this podcast. So 48 episodes Um, this is the most comments I think I've had, which is phenomenal, really, because I'm going to I'm going to go through all of them. Obviously, it's going to make the episode probably a little bit long, but I don't care. So Twitter, uh, we start with Andy at Geek Salad Radio, who said a landmark in practical special special effects and and always in my top five summer movies of 1982, 1982, brackets of the greatest summer movie season ever. ever. At launching the pilot said, I deplore McCreeny's IT skills. At SYIMS podcast said, It's It's a perfect perfect movie that pushed the horror genre with its effects. I love this film and never get bored of repeat viewings. There's also a strong debate for McCreeny being the thing at the end of the movie, which I agree with. At Gundam Guyver said, Personally, I prefer Big Trouble in Little China, fewer rogue intestines. We haven't really talked about Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, that is actually one of my personal favourite John Carpenter movies. Um, and also, 
probably some of the best Kurt Russell that I think has ever been put to screen. But um, I might do Big Trouble in Little China at some point because I think it's so much fun. Um, but I don't know if I prefer it. They're so different. They're so different. I think it's really difficult to choose. I'm not going to be brought into that discussion of choosing between the two. I love them both equally. At Simlu86 said, Not that we needed proof of the lasting quality of practical effects, but it still, still looks absolutely ace nice after all these years. The second best carpenter Russell collab, Big Trouble in Little China being the best, obviously. Um, I think this is leaning towards uh, me possibly doing Big Trouble in Little China if people really, really want it. At Jamie Rue 17498667 said, Simply a masterpiece of horror. Gravity from its startling opening of apparently crazed people shooting at a dog and never lets go of its grip. A terrifyingly good exploration of paranoia, identity and survivalism. Once watched, never forgotten. At BLC Agnew said, One of the many reasons the thing is a classic, I feel one that gets overlooked is how deftly Carpenter balances the tone of the film, creating something deeply compelling and even darkly enjoyable in spite of the bleak, violent, nihilistic bent of the material. At Real Hunter MMM said, A classic, great practical effects, tense, scary, gross at times, and an interesting ending. At Grief Burrito said, Yes, this movie is so good, a masterclass in paranoia and claustrophobia. At Bitch and Boutique said, This is one of the movies I show to young people who don't understand how practical effects can be better than CG. I love watching their minds explode. Also, Curtis's hair is glossy and lush, and I would die for it. Agreed. At Waffles the Magic said, The absolute best made movie ever. Atmospheric, creepy, intense, a perfect 10 out of 10 of a film. My absolute favourite horror. Still watching regularly, still love every minute of it. And that poster, chills, literal chills, perfect cast, perfect director, perfect film. At Word Salad Radio said, Absolutely perfect film. At Cooking with Grief said, This, this podcast, Kurt Russell stance is well documented, and this film is a prime example why. Also, one of my favourite film endings. At Shark Select Pod said, Still has some of the best practical effects. And then added at Winstolf and said, What do you think? At Winstolf came back and said, I really love the thing. thing. It's my top 10 for sure. At Fly on the Wall, Poe 1 said, The, the thing, thing has atmosphere, a sparse but very effective score, strong performances and superb practical effects that still hold up extremely well today. The hopelessness of the location makes it all the more horrifying. At Coffee Breath, CO1 said, Proof that CGI, for all the wonder, terror it can evoke, will never top non-computer generated special effects. The horror of the thing stands on its own as a masterclass of generating fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of others, and fear of oneself. No backstory required. Over on Instagram, because we've got more, at sassylassie76 said, I love this song so much, but it scares me so much I cannot watch it. I know that seems really odd, but it is thoroughly etched into my memory that just seeing a clip makes me want to scream in terror. Brilliant and terrifying horror film. So excited for your episode about it. And Movies at the Mat said there's so much to enjoy about 1982's The Thing. The practical effects, the iconic scenes, the brilliant cast. What it does for me is building paranoia the characters go through. The Thing could be anyone. Even the audience isn't sure who's human as the movie ends. Wonderful. There was actually nothing uh, from Facebook, but that's fine. Because, to be honest, I got more than enough. Thank you so much for everyone who took the time to comment about The Thing. Um, it's just... I think pretty much universal acclaim 
for the thing, uh, which is interesting considering how critics really, really did not like it um, when it came out, which is just bizarre to me, actually. Um, I guess a little bit like that scene in Back to the Future uh, where Marty starts to play Johnny Be Good and then he says, oh, you know, you guys won't get this, but your kids are going to love it. Maybe it's a bit like that with the thing. Uh, I'm not sure. So it is a gory, repulsive horror movie. Let's make no bones about it. It really is. But the thing isn't about body horror. Not really. It's about emotional horror, mental horror, the inability to trust those around you and the paranoia that ensues when you slowly descend into madness. The thing has one goal, to survive. It doesn't care who it infects as long as it lives. It delves into the fear of losing oneself, such as to a disease like dementia, when you're in your body, but it's no longer you within it. In many ways, it's very similar to what I talked about back in the episode I did on Hellboy uh, with H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu, a being that doesn't care who you are. It only wants your destruction. It only wants to be the dominant being. Uh, Hellboy is episode 38, by the way. It's one of my absolute favourite episodes that I've ever done. Uh, And I go into a little bit of detail about H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu uh, because it's one of the defining themes of that movie. If you're interested in Lovecraftian horror or anything like that, I would definitely recommend listening to that episode if you wish uh, and watching Hellboy because it's a wonderful movie. Um, That kind of idea uh, of trust and of uh, a group of people kind of breaking down uh, is something that the 2007 movie The Mist also does incredibly well. Uh, The Mist is another of my favourite kind of horror movies, actually. Uh, If you are keen for me to tackle The Mist, let me know. Um, It is not on my list, actually, which is a bit weird, but I'm happy to put it on there because if people really want me to do The Mist, I would absolutely do The Mist. The other theme of the movie that I found quite interesting is toxic masculinity, um, the inability to be intimate, to show love or compassion. All of these characters are male, obviously, um, and they're all trapped by their own pride. Uh, They refuse to open up for fear of showing emotion. Um, And MacReady's inability to do this is greater than everyone else, which is why it kind of inadvertently makes him the de facto leader and the hero of the story, because he's the most paranoid. It's also an interesting explanation for having no women in the movie, uh, apart from the chess computer, who's voiced by John Carpenter's then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, because women would be able to be more empathetic. Uh, Obviously, having a woman would probably also make her the love interest, and that would just derail the movie completely. Uh, And also, it's worth noting that MacReady destroys the chess computer, uh, which kind of says something about toxic masculinity uh, destroying... Mm. Uh, Anyway, like The Thing itself, uh, The Thing is way more than it appears to be. It's widely regarded as a classic, but it isn't what it appears to be on the surface. Uh, And that's what makes this thing better than the other thing. Um, Depth, depravity, fear isolation, the vast nothingness, despair and beauty in its repulsiveness. Thank you for listening. Um, As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Thing, 1982. And also, if you have thoughts on the 2011 version, 
I mean, you can let me know if you want. Uh, I'd be surprised if someone tells me that they love the 2011 version more than the 1982 version. Undoubtedly, there is at least one person out there who's probably like that, which is cool. Like, if you really love the 2011 version, fill your boots. But I think the general consensus is that the 1982 version is incredibly superior. Next episode, um, we're going to sing a happy song. (laughs) We're going to go for something a bit lighter, brighter, considerably less gory, um, and just extremely, extremely delightful. Um, This was a patron choice. Uh, I gave patrons a choice between two movies. Uh, It was a very close uh, choice, by the way. Um, And uh, the other movie that could have been chosen is going to be coming up a bit later on in the year. Um, But for this episode, the patrons chose 2011's The Muppets, starring Jason Segel and Amy Adams. I love musicals, uh, as you know, if you listen to Little Shop of Horrors. I also love puppet work, which I just think is a given uh, because of my love for practical effects. I absolutely adore puppets. So it's going to be joyful for me to talk about The Muppets. It's a movie that I think is just an absolute joy and delight. I hope you'll join me for that even though it is a little bit different to the thing. (laughs) Well, just a little bit, just a teeny weeny bit. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin, 1992 and 2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels, 2000, The Mummy, 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo in the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet, Clueless, Hellboy 2004, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, Bridesmaids, Tremors, The John Wick Trilogy, A League of Their Own, A Knight's Tale, Little Shop of Horrors, 1986, Rogue One and Princess Mononoke. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. (sighs) I try to make the inflections different on each episode because every time uh, all of these end credit stuff, I do live at the end of recording each episode i don't want to pre-record it and just have it at the end i feel like i want to add something uh, a little bit different each time so i try and change the inflections of each of the movies as i list them <laughs> i don't know if it works and i have no idea if anyone notices uh i mean it's probably one of those things that i am actually gonna have to at least try and maybe pre-record some stuff i don't know uh but at the moment, um, yeah, as soon as I finish recording the episode, I just bang it into the into the final bit. You can follow me if you wish at Verbal Diorama. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I also have a letterboxed account as well that you can get me on. It's all at Verbal Diorama. Um, you can obviously sign up to support the show if you wish on Patreon, patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. You can get some cool perks, one of which is early release episodes. I normally release episodes on the Thursday for general public release. Patrons usually get them on a Tuesday. Um, So it's just a couple of days early. I'm thinking of maybe extending that. I'm also thinking of maybe doing some more 
perks for patrons now that I have a few more patrons than before. I'll come to that in a little bit. But yeah, I am thinking of ways to increase the value for patrons um, to hopefully get some more on board. Um, But a massive thank you to the patrons, Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, and a massive thank you to a brand new patron, Mike. I appear to be working my way through the Geek Salad podcast team because Mike is also a member of Geek Salad, uh, as is Andy, who you'll notice from last episode, became a patron. Obviously, as I mentioned, Geek Salad is a wonderful podcast. I highly recommend you listen to them. Um, You should also listen to me featuring on their podcast very soon. Uh, I have to add, it's been planned for ages. It's nothing to do with them becoming patrons. We've been talking about me going on their podcast for months and months and months. Um, So I'm really excited to be featuring on Geek Salad very soon. And I'm very grateful to Mike and Andy for becoming patrons. Thank you so much. If you want to email me, you can do verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also visit my website, which will be updated soon, I promise. Verbaldiorama.com. If you want to support the podcast, but you can't support it financially, um, you can pop onto iTunes and take two minutes of your time, leave a five-star rating and a little review saying that you think I'm brilliant. Uh, If you do, if you don't, then maybe don't do it. But if you do, that would be awesome. And I also like to mention film stories. Just finally, um, I have a column at the magazine. There is a new issue coming out shortly because I've just submitted my eighth column. Uh, for Film Stories magazine. Um, Please support it if you can. Uh, Go over to their website. Uh, There's a link to purchase uh, copies of the magazine. There is also bits that I do for Film Stories online. And finally, I always do this little and finally bit. And also, I am not sure if anyone is still listening at this point because I'm pretty certain that people don't like to listen to all the blurb at the end and they don't listen to my little bits. So if you've listened to this point and you're listening to this little bit, let me know, because I'm genuinely curious if people are still listening. Um, I mean, I might start putting like little little prizes. I'll be like, if you've reached this point, you win a prize. Uh, I'm not doing that today. But um, I just want to kind of end it by saying, has this episode really been about the thing? I mean, can you really be sure? Maybe listen again. Is it really me talking? Because sure, it sounds like me, but you'll never know if it truly was me. Don't worry, it is me. Or is it? Bye. Blue vision of-